I'm going to tell you something. I mean, none of us were like this before. I'm going to go to college, and I'm going to prove you wrong. Mm, I like this. This is sacred ground. Somewhere I read of the freedom of speech. I just want answers, and I, but I want the truth. Does he have a crush on me? No. Figures. Hearing is seeing. Hearing is seeing. From American Public Media, this is an APM Reports documentary. I got in a little fight, and they told me, I couldn't come back. American schools suspend nearly 3 million students a year. African American and American Indian students are consistently suspended at far higher rates than any other student groups. But research shows that suspension doesn't work, and it can put kids on a path to dropping out. We have many schools where we're punishing the same kids over and over again, and no one is ever asking the question, why isn't our strategy working? Coming up, Spare the Rod, Reforming School Discipline, from APM Reports. Every weekend, Russell Ballinger goes to visit kids who are locked up in juvenile detention centers. Hi. How you doing? Good, good. We are at Boys Totem Town. It's a a boys uh, correctional facility. It's my Saturday morning circle with them. Russell is 65. He grew up in an African-American neighborhood in St. Paul, Minnesota, and raised his kids there. He's been worried about the young people in the neighborhood for a long time. And a few years ago, he decided he'd had enough. It was uh, 2010, and um, my grandson had been shot a couple times in the previous summer. And I just knew the shooting was going to start again. So I just decided I'm not going to let him die in this uh, gang violence. Russell started meeting with families that had kids in gangs, and he started visiting the kids in lockups like this one. Downstairs, huh? He says a lot of the young people in the correction system were arrested after they got in trouble at school, and schools turned them over to police. In the private schools, you don't see the, an officer anywhere near the school. It's, it doesn't look good for them. But in our public schools, where most of these minority kids go, They've got an officer right there in the school who can be called upon as soon as a a teacher looks and says, well, this child is being disruptive. Come and get him out. At Totem Town, eight teenagers are sitting at tables arranged in a rectangle in a concrete block conference room. They're all African-American, all here because they broke the law. Two guards with walkie-talkies sit with them. Russell leads them all through what he calls a circle of peace. And the circle has rules, and I'm going to read them to you. Okay. You can only talk when you have the talking piece. That'll be this today. The talking piece is a small, shiny rock, like a skipping stone. We're talking about how the issues we may have had in school contributed to being here. Or the school-to-prison pipeline. Can you give me an idea of what you feel like school was for you? Uh, for me, school was just like just like a place to chill. I wasn't really getting my education. I was too busy worrying about other things. I never really went to school. I kind of stopped in my freshman year, kind of. I got in a little fight, and then I guess they told me in a way I couldn't come back because of my credits. I knew they didn't want me there, so. Could I ask a question? Yes. Lori wants to ask the question. That's one of our producers, Lori Stern. I, I would like to know of you all here, how, how many were suspended by the schools? Four. One, two, three, four. So everybody here? You two? All eight of these young men were suspended from school and later expelled, or they dropped out. Maybe that doesn't surprise you. You'd expect that guys who get locked up would have trouble in school first. But maybe that's not the whole story. Recent research suggests that getting suspended is not just a signal that a young person is headed for trouble. Suspension itself may actually contribute to later trouble. Take similar kids from similar backgrounds who commit similar offenses at similar schools, suspend some but not others, and the kids who are suspended are more likely to land in the juvenile justice system later. When you deny kids learning time, they fall behind academically because they're not in school. Pedro Noguera is a professor of education at UCLA. 
many times there, there's no provision to make up work you missed because you were in trouble. Uh, and, but secondly, um, the longer you've been put, put out, the more discouraged you become. A student who is suspended in ninth grade, even just one suspension, is twice as likely to drop out later. And kids who are suspended are more likely to get in trouble with the law. Even worse, Nagara says, suspension doesn't work in the first place. It doesn't make kids behave better when they come back to school. But nearly three million kids are suspended from American schools every year. We have many schools where we're punishing the same kids over and over again, and no one is ever asking the question, why isn't our strategy working? Over the coming hour, we'll explore how suspension came to be such a widespread form of discipline in America. We'll look at why kids of color are more likely to be suspended than white kids. And we'll visit schools that are trying to change, dropping harsh discipline policies to try to keep more students in school and out of juvenile detention centers. To start, here is producer Catherine Winter. Central High School sits just south of the freeway that cuts through Russell Ballinger's neighborhood in St. Paul. Central has about 1,900 students. In the halls, you see kids from lots of backgrounds. It's about a third black and a third white. There are Latinos, Native Americans, and Asian Americans. Central students speak 39 different languages at home. More than half the kids are poor enough to qualify for free or reduced-priced lunch. But there are middle-class kids, too. And there are kids who get in trouble and kids who don't. Well, I've never been suspended. This is Jonathan. He's a junior. I don't think I know anyone personally who's been suspended. Kids do get suspended from Central, but they're not usually the kids in the advanced classes Jonathan takes. Good afternoon, everybody. Like Josh Herman's nonfiction English class. Uh, look at next week, please. So, Tuesday, that's when your project is due. Okay. Mr. Herman's students have been doing audio and video projects. We asked some of them to do a project for us, to record the sounds of Central High and tell us about their experiences with discipline. A senior named Reed made this recording. It's Friday, May 13th, and I'm in the entranceway of Central High School. It's 7.30, so any students who come in have to sign a late pass in order to get to class. Um, and an unexcused tardy to class results in Saturday school. So a lot of kids get Saturday school. Reed says he's late a lot, but in his years in high school, he's only been sent to Saturday school once. He leaves the entrance and heads upstairs to class. Mr. Sirogans is the guy you might have heard yelling uh, down in the lobby. and that's, He's just trying to get students to stop loitering and get to class. Um, but, I, w- I mean, I was just there pretty much loitering, and no one paid any attention to me. If they see me, they think I'm doing well-intentioned things instead of not going to class, even though I have definitely taken advantage of that many times. Reed figures he doesn't get punished because he gets good grades and he's not known to act up. But there's also the fact that Reed is white, and you're less likely to get suspended if you're white. In the 2014-15 to school year, Central suspended 2% of its white students and 14% of its black students. We're very conscious of the number of white kids we suspend as opposed to the number of uh, black kids. Mary Mackby's Central's principal. She's been working in St. Paul's school since the 1960s. She was the district's first African-American high school principal. We've looked at why we suspend white kids as opposed to why we suspend black kids. And for white kids, it's usually drug use, cheating, more academic issues. You know, white kids who sprayed the fire extinguisher all over, you know. What are the black kids getting suspended for? Usually for fighting, um, weapons, um threatening behavior toward teachers or like the what we say the willful disobedience the really outlandish um, calling out of teachers and stuff like that in the classroom. Macbee thinks the differences are about social class. The black kids tend to come from tougher backgrounds. But research shows that poverty alone can't explain racial disparities in discipline. That's correct. Indiana University professor Russell Skiba has been studying school discipline for decades. 
He says it's true that kids from poor families are more likely to get into trouble at school. But if you compare kids who come from the same socioeconomic backgrounds, black children are still more likely to be suspended than white children. Middle-class black kids are more likely to be suspended than middle-class white kids. And Skiba says that's not because black children act up more in school. We uh, have not seen any evidence that African-American students are engaging in higher rates of more serious behavior than um, other students in the same schools and the same districts. In fact, what we found was that they seemed to be referred to the office more for subjective reasons rather than more objective reasons. Subjective reasons like loitering, disrespect, threatening behavior. Things that are in the eye of the beholder. Skiba points to one study where teachers were asked to look at a series of anecdotes about student misbehavior. Different teachers got the same stories. Only the students' names were changed. They would use a a white-sounding name uh, like Jennifer versus an African-American-sounding name like Jamal. The teachers that got the African-American-sounding names were more likely to say the kids were troublemakers and to prescribe harsher discipline for them. That might help explain why nationally a black child is nearly four times as likely as a white child to be suspended, even in preschool. Skiba says there's no evidence that suspension makes kids behave better or acts as a deterrent for kids who are still in school. And he says being out of school has serious consequences. Many studies show a strong correlation between being disengaged with school and winding up in trouble with the law. So how did suspension come to be such a widely used form of discipline? That seemed like a good question for a historian. My name is Judith Kafka. I'm an associate professor um, at Brute College, School of Public Affairs, and I'm a historian of education and education policy. Judith Kafka says in some ways, discipline has changed a lot since the days of the one-room schoolhouse back in the 19th century. And a lot of things that they did in schools that today we would just be appalled by, you know, making them kneel on sharp objects or stand for a very long time or, yeah, get hit by a hand or a ruler or a switch. Some people thought beatings would build character. But not everyone thought that sparing the rod would spoil the child. There were a lot of reformers in the mid-1800s who said this is not how children learn best. It's not how they learn content best, if we think about reading or social studies or whatever it is, but it's also not really how they learn how to behave best, because if all they worry about is compliance, then when the authority figure leaves, they don't know how to behave. So there was debate about how to discipline children. But Kafka says what everyone did agree on was that discipline was an inherent part of a teacher's job. That changed after World War II. By then, one-room schoolhouses had given way to bigger schools with multiple classrooms. And if you got in trouble, you could get sent to the principal's office. Won't you sit down, Jim? In this 1949 educational film, it's the kindly principal who deals with a young vandal, not the teacher. I'll fix the desk, Mr. Edmonds. I'll sand it down and refinish it. You won't be able to tell where I scratched it at all. That's a good idea, Jim. Historian Judith Kafka says teachers were happy to let principals take over the job of punishing students. Teachers wanted discipline put in their contract so they could say, this isn't my job. I'm supposed to teach English. I'm not supposed to be dealing with a behavior problem. And a behavior problem then should be dealt with outside of the classroom. A kid who's disrupting class should be taken away for punishment or maybe sent to a school psychologist or social worker or to reform school. I'm not a juvenile delinquent. In the 40s and 50s, there was a widespread fear that kids were out of control, under the influence of comic books and movies and rock and roll music. Newsreels warned of a crisis of juvenile delinquency. Juvenile delinquency now is recognized as a major problem by the top law enforcement officials of the land. Later, scholars argued that the rise in juvenile crime was greatly exaggerated. But many people thought schools really looked like the classrooms in the 1955 movie Blackboard Jungle. Blackboard Jungle deals with an explosive subject, the teenage terror in the schools. There were all these hearings after the movie came out about what's going on, about the crisis in our school. Judith Kafka says this fear of chaos continued in the next decades. It was fueled by the civil rights protests in the 1960s and then by rising crime rates in the 1970s the number of kids getting suspended started to rise. Many scholars argue that after desegregation, suspension was used as a way to push black children out of school. 
In the 1970s, black students were twice as likely to be suspended as white students. This is crack. It's crack, rock cocaine. A new kind of cocaine called crack. A drug so pure and so strong, it might just as well be called crack of doom. The crack epidemic of the 80s and 90s triggered a renewed fear of gang violence and greater efforts to punish criminals, both in and outside of schools. We cannot let violence, guns, drugs stand between our children and the education they need. President Bill Clinton signed the Gun-Free Schools Act in 1994. By that time, the era of zero tolerance was already underway in American schools. Under zero-tolerance policies, a student who violated some school rules faced mandatory penalties. For some infractions, schools were required to turn kids over to the police. By the 1996 school year, the great majority of school districts had adopted zero-tolerance policies. And over the next decade, the number of public high schools with full-time security guards or police officers in the building tripled. But then... We're going to take a closer look tonight at school security. Stories like this one began popping up in the news. A 10-year-old Florida girl got caught stealing a few lollipops on a school field trip. Under zero tolerance, school officials were required to suspend the girl from the third grade and call the police. She was read her rights and charged with criminal mischief. One kid got charged with using an egg as a deadly weapon. A 7-year-old Maryland boy was suspended after biting his Pop-Tart into the shape of a gun. The number of school-based arrests rose dramatically under zero tolerance, even though school-based crime stayed about the same. Worse, research was finding that zero tolerance didn't work. It didn't deter misbehavior. And even though the rules were supposed to be the same for everyone, kids of color were getting punished and referred to police more than white kids. Look, I think it's hard to admit when we're wrong. Randy Weingarten is president of the American Federation of Teachers. The AFT and other teachers' unions supported zero tolerance at first. But now, Weingarten says, it created a toxic mess in public schools. It didn't help us get to the safe and welcoming school environments that every parent wants for his or her child, that every teacher wants, and that every student needs. When you see that you're wrong, you have to say that you're wrong and apologize for it. In 2014, the federal departments of Education and Justice sent a letter to state education commissioners. It said out-of-school suspensions and expulsions should only be a last resort, limited to the most serious infractions. And if schools punish students of color more than their white peers, they risk being investigated for civil rights violations. Now school district officials have this data that shows they've been punishing kids of color more than white kids. They know they need to change. But when you try to fix a racial inequity, it's hard to please everyone. There are people who don't even believe the inequity exists. And there are people who are sure it does, but who don't trust the school district to fix it. So things get tense. That's what happened recently in St. Paul. Producer Lori Stern lives in St. Paul, and she writes about education. I remember hearing back in 2011 that St. Paul schools were going to get an overhaul. Good evening and welcome to the Board of Education meeting for the month of February 2011. At a meeting early that year, the school board heard from Michelle Walker, who was the district's chief accountability officer then. African American and American Indian students are consistently suspended at far higher rates than any other student groups. That school year, an African-American child in a St. Paul elementary school was 16 times more likely to be suspended than an Asian child. So the district was trying something new. Teachers would get training in cultural sensitivity to try to reduce racial disparities. And schools were no longer allowed to suspend children for what the handbook called willful disobedience. Now, unfortunately, some people took that as we were saying, do not suspend students. Michelle Walker is district CEO now. She says the district never banned suspensions. It just stopped suspending for infractions like mouthing off or being disruptive in class. But some teachers took the new policy to mean they'd better not send a kid of color to the principal's office. The district had asked principals to keep a careful watch on disparities. For a brief time, reducing suspensions was part of the formula for calculating principals' bonus pay. We did see that shift from going from a zero-tolerance policy to all of a sudden... Nobody was getting suspended, and discipline 
or school climate issues weren't getting addressed at all. My name's Nick Faber, and I'm a teacher here in St. Paul for the last 29 years and also the vice president of the St. Paul Federation of Teachers. Faber says teachers wanted to help low-income kids of color do better, but the new discipline policy didn't do that. That did look good on paper, but when you started to walk in our buildings, especially our middle schools, you saw a whole lot of chaos going on, meaning students were still acting out in many ways, but those behaviors just weren't being dealt with. So we still had a number of racial inequities going on. We didn't have kids' needs being met. And instead of just blaming students now, we were blaming students and teachers for that. A lot of teachers told me they didn't feel like they could send students to the office, and they didn't feel like their principals had given them any other options for dealing with misbehavior. They said students knew they wouldn't get in trouble, so they wandered the halls and swore at teachers and worse. Oh, my God! They find a teacher! This is cell phone video of two students tackling a teacher in the hallway. And there were other incidents that made headlines. Good evening. A 16-year-old St. Paul student is accused of body slamming and choking his high school teacher. St. Paul police classify this fight at a school as a riot. In recent months, St. Paul public schools have had two other teachers assaulted on the job. The latest in a string of violent assaults against teachers in St. Paul schools. It's not clear whether there really was more violence in schools under the new discipline guidelines or whether it was just getting more media attention. Statistics from the school district show an increase in what the district calls aggression to staff. But the numbers show a decrease in fighting, weapons, and disruptive behavior. Still, parents were worried. Hello! Rainbow and Rafael Espinosa have four kids in the St. Paul schools. Nene and Lily are the two younger kids. It's early spring, and they're still excited about the rabbit they got for Christmas. His name is Mopsy. Go upstairs. Rainbow says that recently a boy in Nene's first grade class threatened to kill him. But the next day, that boy was back in class. She thinks kids need stricter discipline. You know, we got kids literally climbing bookshelves in the classroom, and the teachers don't feel that they're able to to do anything about it. Rainbow's husband, Rafael, is from Mexico. The Espinosas say they know that when schools crack down on discipline, kids who look like theirs are more likely to be punished. But they say Nene has been misbehaving at school, and they want him to face consequences. Later on, there's definitely going to be consequences. So if he's not learning right now, you know, right from wrong, later on in life, it's going to be, you know, no employer is going to put up with that, and, and, and the police is not going to put up with that either. Um, I have been, my whole life, I've been fighting, you know, social justice issues. Um, and I think that when when I think about the fact that we're trying to reduce suspensions and reduce, um, you know, disciplinary actions. In theory, that that sounds really good to me. The problem is that I think that we have a pendulum that has swung way too far to the other side. By spring of 2016, the pendulum was swinging back. Suspensions were back up in St. Paul schools. They'd never gone down much, and the district had never closed the discipline gap. Kids of color were still more likely to be suspended. You guys really need to step to the plate and put some serious pressure on these racist teachers. This is Chantel Allen during the public comment period at the St. Paul School Board meeting in March of 2016. This racism is causing our kids to really disrupt in classrooms. And then you see these attacks that are happening and you're trying to blame it on them. The board heard from angry parents of black students, and then a white guy stood up, a substitute teacher named Jim Endress. I have never met a teacher anywhere that wouldn't give the shirt off of his or her back for his kids. Anywhere. Today, we have something called political correctness. Some people left their seats and surrounded him. After several minutes, someone dimmed the lights. The superintendent and most of the board members slipped out a back door to wait for things to cool down. When the meeting finally resumed, board members approved a new teacher contract. Teachers had been threatening to strike over discipline issues, and the new contract explicitly addresses discipline. It calls for pilot programs in restorative justice at six schools. 
A lot of school districts around the country are facing the same frustrations as the St. Paul schools when they try to reduce suspensions. And a lot of them are pinning their hopes on restorative justice as a way to reform school discipline. Coming up, we'll hear about what restorative justice is and why so many people hope it can transform schools. And we visit a district that has managed to narrow its discipline gap. When we expel a kid, it's actually a failure on our part as a district. We didn't figure out in time how to really reach that kid. This is an APM Reports documentary, Spare the Rod, Reforming School Discipline. I'm Stephen Smith. What's happening? Are you okay? This is North High School in Denver. It's a Thursday afternoon, and Principal Scott Wolf is walking the halls. Coleman, what's going on? He spots Michael Coleman, a school dean, steering a lanky young man down the hallway. Mr. Wolf wants to know what's up. Under the influence. Where's he supposed to be? He's going with Miss Wentz to call his mom, and then he's going to be in in-school suspension. The boy's been drinking, or something. His eyes are red, and he weaves when he walks. The dean is bringing the student to the office, but not sending him home. Instead, the student will go to in-school suspension where, when he sobers up, he might do some schoolwork. Since 2004, Denver has cut the number of students in out-of-school suspension by more than half. Now the district tries to provide consequences inside the school walls. Hi, Mr. Lucero. How you doing? Mr. Wolf stops in to visit in-school suspension. Three students are sitting at their desks, writing. Ray, my man. Uh, <laughs> what brings you in here today? It's because I had a rough day yesterday, so I'm in. Okay. You could call this the timeout room. Students who've had a behavior problem come here to work on corralling their emotions. But they're also required to think about what they did. Okay, and what have been your reflections so far of being in here? Uh, I didn't report. Your notes, show me your notes. I didn't report. On uh, threatening teachers and okay. the consequences. Great. And I'm going to make a poster. Awesome. About it. The idea is to do better next time. And then what are you going to do with this report and with this poster? Uh, it's just going to show what can, when you make negative decisions, what can happen and the consequences. And sometimes we're still going to get frustrated, right? Yeah. And so what are you going to do to help to control your emotions in those situations? Just holding what I have to say until I'm in a, in a room alone yeah. or until I calm down. Cool. Nice. Good reflections, Ray. As they work, the students refer to some writing prompts on a whiteboard. Ray reads them off. And then there's just questions right here that say, what happened? Who was harmed? What role did you play in the incident? What can you do to fix the harm that, you, that was done? Those questions are the basis of restorative justice. What happened? What can you do to make it better? Talia Gonzalez studies restorative justice in schools. She is a professor at Occidental College in Los Angeles. She says restorative justice is more a philosophy than a set of practices, but it often involves conferences between adults and students, maybe including their parents. Or it might be a student sitting down with a circle of people who were harmed in some way by something the student did. The aim is to reach a resolution at the end, bring it to that place of either restoring a trust, right, addressing a harm, making amends. This is what a lot of people in education are pinning their hopes on to replace a discipline system where millions of kids are suspended from school every year. The data is in that kids of color are suspended more than their white classmates, and being suspended makes kids more likely to drop out and more likely to wind up in trouble with the law. So schools are looking for a better way, and a lot of them are looking at restorative justice. Schools in Los Angeles, Oakland, Pittsburgh, New York, Boston, and in at least 27 states. The entire state of Texas is adopting restorative practices. Advocates hope this approach can help keep kids in school. When we expel a kid, it's actually a failure on our part as a district. We didn't figure out in time how to really reach that kid. Aldridge Greer is the Associate Chief of Student Services for Denver Public Schools. His job is to make sure students have what they need to learn. He says kids do not need punishment to learn. They might need breakfast or mental health support. It's up to the adults at school to figure that out, he says. When people in education talk about making restorative practices work, they often point to Denver as an example. Denver tried it earlier than most other districts, back in 2005, and now Denver is putting restorative practices in place at all its schools. So Denver's a good place to look at what restorative practices are and how they work. 
and what it takes to get a school district to change, because the district wasn't always receptive to the idea. It got pushed into changing its policies by a group of parents who were fed up with having their kids kicked out of school. Producer Lori Stern traveled to Denver to hear that story from the families who are still pushing Denver schools to teach their kids, not kick them out. Lorena Limon is trying to soothe her baby girl with a bottle. They live in a basement apartment in southwest Denver with Lorena's husband and three other kids. Lorena says it's a good building, but the police have been a constant presence at the projects next door. She says the SWAT team has been out and there have been lots of drug busts. Lorena's three older kids go to Denver schools. Jensen is six, and he's in first grade. Lorena says he'd like to study sharks and dinosaurs when he grows up. He loves school, and his mother makes sure school loves him back. She was furious last year when the school called and told her to pick Jensen up because he'd said a bad word. She found out a white kid had said the same word, but only Jensen was going to be sent home. She told the principal she wasn't taking her son home unless the other boy was sent home, too. Lorena says she knew what her rights were. And she did, because she recently got involved with a group called Padres y Jóvenes Unidos. Padres and Jóvenes, their translation to parents and youth. Ricardo Martinez and his wife Pam are the group's founders. Ricardo told me the story of how Padres got started. Back in 1992, parents were outraged by how a principal at a grade school was punishing kids at lunchtime. At this one school, the, the, the practice, what the policy was, if you spoke English, you got to sit in the lunchroom in a corner on the tables. But if you were a Spanish speaker, you sat in another corner, but you sat on the floor. Ricardo says parents complained, but nothing changed. So they held a protest. My wife saw them on TV, and she called, and we went to support them. When we all got involved, we all came together, and... We were successful in our efforts to change that practice and get rid of that principal who never apologized, who never made any wrongdoing, and that was the creation of Padres Unidos. We would get calls once we got known, and it was in schools of color. And even though we were not in the black community, we would get calls to see if we could help them. In 1999, Padres Unidos was invited to a conference hosted by a new national civil rights group called Advancement Project. Jesse Jackson was there, and different senators were there, and heavies in the field of education. And me and one mother from the east side, Cole Middle School, sat there together, trying to understand what they were saying. And what they were saying was, it is systemic, and there's something called the school-to-jail track. They weren't sure quite yet how it happened, But they did feel there was a direct correlation of kids of color being pushed out a lot of schools and contributing to this huge overpopulation of incarceration in this country. So that's where we first made the link. And we went, oh, this is fascinating. (laughs) Maybe this is what's happening to us. Maybe the reason there was a disproportionate number of people of color in prison had something to do with the disproportionate number who were kicked out of school. Denver had a tough discipline policy in the 1990s, a zero-tolerance policy meant to keep weapons out of schools. Most American schools had similar policies. Eyewitnesses say the two gunmen wearing black trench coats and black masks came in shooting and began working their way through the school. Teachers raced ahead to classrooms, yelling for students... But zero tolerance didn't keep the killers out of Columbine High School in 1999. Two students shot 34 people at the school about a half hour from Denver and then killed themselves. Thirteen of their victims died. The nation was horrified. After Columbine, Colorado and many other states doubled down on school discipline. New laws called for expulsion or suspension, not just for bringing weapons or drugs to school but for things like fighting or making threats or disrupting class. Schools installed metal detectors and hired police officers. In Denver, school referrals to police went up 71 percent. Most of those referrals were black or Latino kids. You were asking for limits on the police. Here's Ricardo Martinez again. North High School at that point was under siege. Every every day uh, during uh, lunch and at the end of school, there would be at least four squad cars out there 
and they'll be blaring through their PA, go home, get on the bus, go home. The police presence, you know, created such a impression that everybody thought that all these students were criminals. Padres Unidos had become Padres y Jóvenes Unidos, Parents and Youth United. The group started hearing about tough schools in other parts of the country that had turned around their discipline policies. So Padres applied for a grant from the state. And beginning in 2006, that grant funded pilot programs in restorative justice in four Denver schools, including North High. The hope was that using restorative practices would reduce suspensions. And it did. Not only do we see overall suspension rates decreasing, but we see the racial gap in suspension rates decreasing. Talia Gonzalez studied the effect of those pilot programs in Denver. So the African-American rate before was 17.61%. And you see overall suspension rates for all African-American students decreasing to 7.2%. Gonzalez says early data from Denver and other schools show restorative practices may have other benefits, too. In some districts, achievement went up after restorative practices went into effect. Schools posted better test scores, higher reading levels, and more kids made it to graduation. In Denver, students didn't cut school as much. Researchers asked them why. You know, so why did your attendance improve and why did your tardies improve? And the students themselves are talking about how they wanted to be in their classroom now. Their teacher treated them with respect. At North High School in Denver, the number of fights went down. Ben Cairns was a restorative justice coordinator at North starting in 2007. One thing I really looked to was not just like this, are we reducing suspensions and expulsions, but are we actually changing children's behavior? Are we actually changing the culture and climate of school? In 2008, Padres y Jovenes won a big victory. The Denver schools agreed to change discipline practices district-wide. All schools would use restorative practices instead of punitive approaches. School officials would be prohibited from referring kids to law enforcement in most cases. Ben Cairns moved on to a new job as principal of Cole High School. At Cole High School, students snap their fingers to show approval during announcements. It's a quiet way of clapping. Most of them are black or brown kids from low-income households. They're sitting in the commons area, where the whole school gathers every morning. The assembly is a time to share information and start the day with school spirit. Um, have an awesome Thursday, 10th graders, go fast. After the meeting, Ben Cairns asks if I'd like to talk to a student named Noah, because Noah's an example of how things have changed in Denver. Not long ago, Noah brought some brass knuckles to school. He says he's not sure why he did it. I guess I thought it was cool or something, but I just kind of had them, and like, I'm not feeling threatened or anything. It's just, just in case. I guess that's kind of the biggest thing. I just kind of... I just kind of had them. So how did you get found out? Um, they had fallen out of my pocket, and one of the teachers saw them. And then what happened? Uh, he went and turned them into Mr. Karen's. Mr. Karen's turn uh, asked me to go back to his office. And if the old discipline policies had still been in effect, Mr. Karen's would have been required to refer Noah to the police. But I would have had to go for an expulsion had this been pre-2008, which would have been nonsense. This is a good kid who just needed, like, to talk and learn. So I met with him, met with his dad. He's done some reflecting. But it would have been ridiculous to have to expel him. Noah says part of the deal he made with his dad and Mr. Cairns was that he would work harder in school so he can get into an AP biology class. He's glad the school uses restorative justice. It just gave me a chance to like be welcomed back into my community. and Because, I mean, I don't know personally, I don't, th- I don't think I'm a bad kid. This is one example of how restorative practices work at Cole a meeting with a kid and his dad, an agreement to do some things differently, a sort of reparation. For some incidents, Mr. Cairns just meets with the kids. We'll start with the M&Ms in the hallway and go from there. Ben Cairns has a couple of 10th graders in the office. Yesterday, a teacher caught them throwing M&Ms in the hallway. I didn't have a a problem. I was like, okay, I'll clean them up, blah, blah, blah. But then she started trying to embarrass me. And so I was like, it made me mad. How was she trying to embarrass you? But she was like, it's people like you who, I don't know, I got, I stopped listening after she said that uh, people like you who take our, what did she say? People, it's people like you who are the reason that we can't have privileges or something like that. Well, you were throwing food in the hallway. What, what argument, I mean, I understand you might have taken offense to what she said, but what point do you think she was trying to make? 
Not to throw food in the hallway. No, she was making a bigger point than that. What was the bigger point she was trying to make? I'm guessing she was saying something to the effect of, if you're making a choice to throw food in the hallway, that's why we don't have food in the hallways. Right? That's why no one gets to have food in the hallways is because of that kind of choice. Because if you're to the level of irresponsibility, then cause us, us to have rules that sort of impinge on everyone's ability to have food in the hallway. You guess what she was trying to say? You can see that point? Now, maybe she didn't frame it the right way, maybe you weren't in the right headspace to hear it, but I'm guessing that that's the point she was trying to make. Let's go back to you throwing food in the hallway. So, Kyrie, talk to me about your last couple of days here, because I feel like I'm a little frustrated. It was a bad couple of days. The boys didn't just Respect. throw food. They climbed out a window to leave like school early. Childish and immature behavior that's not going to help our school run. What would happen if every single kid in our school acted the way you two did the last three days? Oh, boy. The whole conversation lasts about 15 minutes. The idea is to get Kyrie and Marcus to think about why they did what they did and take responsibility for it. Mr. Cairns wants to make sure the reflections stick, so he asks the boys to write them down. So I think you can apologize for sort of your your disrespect, but then you can also say, hey, Ms. Darian, I, I, I would like to follow up and talk because I didn't feel super respected by a couple of things you said as well. Would that be fair? Think you can put that in writing? The kids don't get a harsh punishment, but Ben Cairn says they're not getting away with what they did either. Restorative justice is still deep accountability. You are accountable for acting a fool in our community. You cannot do that. It's not okay. You can't be rude. You can't be disrespectful. And that's for teachers and kids. No one gets to act that way. Everyone has to act well, and everyone has to treat each other with dignity. And when we don't, we're going to talk about it and fix it and repair it. So the kids will apologize to the teacher for being disrespectful. But the teacher is also supposed to think about whether she treated the students with respect. Restorative practices aren't just about changing the students' behavior. Teachers are supposed to change, too. It's really hard to hold it like a pencil and punch it. It just doesn't work that way. Put it in your palm and punch it. Try it, Allie. This is Try James it. Duran's woodshop class at Skinner Middle School. Duran is a classroom teacher now, but for 12 years, he was the dean at Skinner. Uh, being the dean of students, I was responsible for administering um, suspensions and then requesting expulsion hearings. It sounds crazy, but we suspended if a student refused to comply with the teacher's request. We, we would even suspend for truancies. I felt like we needed to change. We had to do something different. So in 2006, James Duran was glad to have a new principal and the staff training she brought to implement restorative practices. The conversation started changing like, I can't stand this kid, get out, uh, and I don't want him back, to can you give this kid a timeout? And we started to put the onus back on the teachers and saying, now wait a minute, you know, did you document this? Did you contact parents? Did you bring the parents in for conferences, things like this? Duran was an almost instant convert. But the change was hard on many teachers. Some complained they didn't feel safe or that their classrooms were chaotic because kids didn't face consequences for misbehavior. I will tell you, the first year, probably half the staff left because they did not like the discipline here. Even teachers who support the idea of restorative practices are frustrated sometimes. Andrea Rossin teaches 10th grade English at North High School. In her school, when there's a conflict between a teacher and a student, they meet with someone on the school's restorative justice team to try to figure out what each of them did to cause the conflict and what each of them can do to make things better. Those kinds of conversations are transformative. And then at the end of that conversation, you know, when you find that common ground and then hug it out with the student or you have some tears, I mean, that, that is just beautiful and human. But Rossin says sometimes it doesn't go that well. And sometimes you can't do it at all there's never enough time. And so you might want to have 20 conversations with 20 different kids. But when are you supposed to do that? And at North, like everywhere in Denver, there are just a few designated restorative justice staff. So teachers like Rawson have to improvise all the time. You know, I'm walking down the hall and I see a kid who I know has biology. So I tell him, hey, you know, you should uh, really be in biology. And he tells me to off and keeps on walking or gives me a big attitude, what do I do with that? A lot of the lower level discipline stuff goes to the wayside. 
Thanks, Mikey. Where are you headed? This Blankenship. This Blankenship. I'll walk you there. Come on with me. That's Mr. Wolf again, the principal at North High. You take your hood down for me? He's working the hallways between periods. How is the morning? It's a chance to check in with students. And every principal I met with said it's important to make sure would-be troublemakers are not hanging out in stairwells and hallways. One more period, and then you're finished. Scott Wolf says staff are stretched thin. The restorative approach, he calls it RA, requires time and funding. We cannot conduct the RA conversations that we need to within the budget that we have because it, it just takes longer. It takes longer to bring the families in. It takes longer to have the hour-long meeting to really unpack who is feeling that they have attention with somebody else. So it takes a lot of time. Denver schools are already stressed by a growing population and poor funding. Colorado has one of the lowest per-pupil spending rates in the country. Eldridge Greer, the Denver school's administrator, worries that the pendulum could swing back. I think that's a possibility, especially in Colorado. You know, just with our history of shootings, um, it would be very easy for us out of a place of fear if we had another shooting or another really significant event of violence that involved kids for the reaction of the community and for the reaction of the legislature to be, we're going to go back down to a path of zero tolerance. And that would be, I would argue, a fool's bargain. It doesn't serve our needs, but it addresses the anxiety that often a lot of us can feel when we're confronted with something that's traumatic and outside of our experience. So I think Colorado's more vulnerable than a lot of places to uh, swing back in that way. The grassroots group that pushed for these discipline changes wants to make sure that doesn't happen. It's the day when Padres y Jovenes gives the Denver Public School District a grade on how well it's doing to eliminate disparities in discipline. We're in a community room at a housing project across from a middle school. The room is packed with about 100 parents and students. The superintendent and administrators from the school district sit at a table, listening and taking notes. Ricardo Martinez is at the podium. Our policies, our fight is not to change student behavior. Our fight is to change adult behavior. And we are very successful at it. Students, cops, social workers, and other parents speak too. Toward the end, a mother says it's ridiculous that her three-year-old has been repeatedly suspended from preschool. After a couple of hours, the district gets its grade, a C+. The superintendent agrees to work with Padres on several specific proposals to reduce disparities. The district will stop expelling preschoolers, for example, and start publishing data on incidents that involve police. Administrator Eldridge Greer is there, too, and I ask him later if it was hard to hear the students give the district a C plus. He says no. He's glad Padres y Jovenes is still putting pressure on the district. We have a long way to go, but we wouldn't have made nearly the progress that we have made if it wasn't for students in Padres, if it wasn't for student activists across the district really pushing, this is what our experience is like, and you have the power to change our experience. Greer points out that the district has almost erased discipline disparities for Latinos. But even though the discipline gap has narrowed, it persists, especially for African-American and Native American students. And Denver's achievement gap is one of the worst in the country. In some other schools that have implemented restorative practices, achievement has gone up. It's not clear why that would be true in some places, but not others. It's not clear which restorative practices work best, or even exactly what counts as a restorative practice. As researchers, we're just behind. Talia Gonzalez says the past few years have brought an explosion of interest in restorative practices, but their use in schools is still pretty new. She says researchers will know more after long-term studies with control groups are published. She says initial findings are promising. The power of understanding that a person realized that they harmed another individual, even though at the moment that that was all happening, they didn't realize that, that's transformational. Gonzalez says restorative practices have the potential to address not just individual conflicts, but problems in schools that involve big issues like race and class. That's what Padres y Jovenes has been working on for nearly 25 years. Founder Ricardo Martinez says he hopes other school districts will learn from Denver. Because what has transpired here in Denver has been led by the people who have suffered the most. 
And we came with the solutions. We came with the money. We came with the obvious changes that needed to happen. This has been a, a ground-up fight. Back in the 1980s and 90s, politicians and educators called for zero-tolerance policies because they wanted to make schools safer. And a lot of people believed these policies would make discipline more fair. Everyone would be subject to the same strict rules. But it's clear now that it didn't work that way. The policies didn't make schools safer. And kids of color still got suspended and expelled disproportionately, especially black and Latino boys. But so did gay and lesbian students and disabled students. It's also clear now that the cost of suspension is high. It contributes to kids dropping out, getting into more trouble at school, and even winding up in trouble with the law. Many schools are trying to change, but in order to change, they need buy-in from political leaders, educators, parents, and students. A lot of Americans are talking about race and power, but those conversations are tense. And while the adults try to sort things out, millions of kids are still suspended from American schools every year. You've been listening to Spare the Rod, Reforming School Discipline. It was produced by Catherine Winter, Laurie Stern, Suzanne Pico, and Ryan Katz, and edited by me, Stephen Smith. The web editor is Dave Peters. The web producer is Andy Cruz. Research and production help from Alex Bumhart, Lila Cherneff, and Liz Lyon. Mixing by Craig Thorson. The APM Reports documentary team includes Emily Hanford, Sasha Eslanian, Samara Freemark, Ellen Gettler, Dylan Pierce-McCoy, and Chris Worthington. We have much more about this story at our website, including information about the connection between achievement and discipline. That's at apmreports.org, where you can also browse our archive of documentaries about education and sign up for our weekly education podcast. We'd like to know what this program made you think about. Please let us know. You can find contact information at our website or write us a review on iTunes. We're also on Facebook and on Twitter, where our handle is at educatepodcast, one word. Support for this program comes from the Spencer Foundation, Lumina Foundation, and the Corporation for Public Broadcasting's American Graduate Project. A note of disclosure, the Spencer Foundation supported some of the research referred to in this program, but the foundation had no influence on our coverage. This is APM, American Public Media.